You're listening to Beyond Your Imagination with Chris Martin, in-depth conversations with dreamers and doers about the 21st century world of independent film. How do you reclaim and redefine the stories and American iconography present in films? Kanani Koster is a filmmaker from Portland, Oregon, flipping the script and telling stories that explore race, power, and privilege with violence, gore, and brutality without feeding collective trauma. From her early days in Seattle, meeting amazing mentors, to the community atmosphere and punk vibe of Portland, Oregon, Kanani brings her imagination to life by collaborating and ensuring that her team challenges and checks one another's perceptions and ideas. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Kanani Koster, and I'm a writer, director, and producer here in Portland, Oregon. I started working in film up in Seattle. That's where I'm kind of originally from. My undergrad is technically, I went to school to become a teacher. And basically, while I was there, I found out that I really don't like children that much. Um, (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But but one of the things I did do in college was I, I met my husband, Travis, and we both enjoyed film. But the idea of actually joining the film industry and like working in it seemed very daunting, very scary, not something we could actually do. But we also liked education. So we kind of wanted to merge those two passions together. We had been taking classes in college that were about like film history and like filmmaking. But I really didn't like those classes. I didn't (laughs) like them when I did them in high school and I didn't like them in college. I felt like They were very whitewashed. The way that they were talking about film history, the films that we were required to watch, also the filmmaking, just the the classes that that I was taking, I remember so often like a lot of dudes would come in and they'd be like, yeah, I'm going to do camera and this and Connie, you can be in front of the camera. And I'm like, oh, God, no, 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 no. (laughs) I don't work well on that side. And just being really frustrated by that entire process. So When I met Travis, we both had a lot of these same ideas and feelings towards it. And we started talking about how can you teach filmmaking in an equitable way? What is digital storytelling? And um, how can we how can we get kids and specifically kids of color, because I'm a woman of color, more into filmmaking and how can this be more accessible? And so we started writing curriculum that would be more equitable and more open. And that was like just the big thing, like accessibility. How do we make this something that kids in the middle of the city can get involved with? Because so often kids are required to go to a location um, and that in itself is hard. So we kind of came up with Cherry Street Films. We were a mobile operation and we would work and partner with different organizations around Seattle. And we would go to the neighborhoods where the students were and work out of a hub from there. We would bring in a lot of cameras and equipment and Adobe Premiere, because I had really been pushing the idea that at the time, like cell phone guerrilla filmmaking was totally big in the education sphere. And I was like, I don't think that in itself is accessible, especially when we're trying to work with a wide range of students, because some kids have the newest iPhone and other kids still have a flip phone. So how is this problematic and how can we kind of rectify that situation? So that was kind of the basis. 
But then I started getting more and more inspired and I met more and more people in Seattle who also were doing film and they kind of were somewhat inviting and I started to get more opportunities to work on sets. And I was like, okay, this doesn't seem nearly as crazy for me to do now. And eventually I I made my first short film that was kind of like my first real short film, The New Frontier, which was a Western that kind of talked about people of color's contributions to the old West and our history. So I made that. And then eventually I moved to Portland, Oregon. And I feel like that's kind of where everything completely changed for me in terms of finding like a real community of people who were so excited to like work with me and support me. And it was nice because they were inviting me to work on their sets. And it felt, it just currently does still feel really good where I can I can contribute to other people's projects and really rally and support them just as much as they do for me. So that means a lot. Yeah. What do you think the difference was between starting in Seattle and where you're at now in Portland? Yeah, I think honestly with Seattle, I uh, I think they're very cliquish. I think there isn't, um, I think there's just like two very big very different levels of filmmaking in Seattle. And I think that's like the Megan Griffiths and uh, you know, like the, the indie scene and those are legitimate productions, but they're not very inviting to people who are not in their kind of club. So it's very hard to get PA positions and anything like that. Or there's the corporate route and there's like always Microsoft video commercials (laughs) and like things like that, that people are working on. But here in Portland, I think there's just like a wider breadth. It's, just there's just so much more community. And also I think it's just like, that is the vibe of Portland has always had that punk vibe where there's like, Oh, we're willing to start from anywhere. And I I think that vibe works a lot better with who I am as a person a little bit. And um, yeah. And what's neat about Portland too, is there's definitely a lot of community organizations that are popping up around media and, uh, you know, equity and equality as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. One of the things that's really fascinating, too, is you don't shy away from the big questions. <laughs> so when, when you and Travis started Cherry Street Films, it's like you were asking just giant questions. Mm-hmm. Have you been always attracted to the big questions? Yeah, so I'm I'm mixed race. I identify as Hapa, which is Kanaka Maoli, which is Hawaiian, Japanese, and white. And Hapa is pigeon for mixed race on the islands. And so I've kind of always been in that in between and kind of just facing that as a person of color, it's just always been there. You know, when I was a kid and when I was growing up, I always felt like I was too white to hang out with a lot of the kids of color or like the Asian cliques. But then when I'd be with the white kids, it would be the same thing. You're too of color and you're too, you're too brown or you're too much of this. And so I think it's something that I've always been forced to look at in terms of myself and recognizing my own privileges and my own biases, but also just constantly having to deal with the racism and the prejudice. I grew up in Snoqualmie, Washington, and that is a very white town. It's also Twin Peaks. (laughs) Yes. But it was very white. It was very racist. You know, I getting called chink wasn't like a groundbreaking thing. It was just kind of what I grew up with. So when I went to college in Seattle and I was able to like really start talking about this experience and like what that means and how you can, 
how you approach that in filmmaking and how you can really talk about these bigger issues it was just like really freeing to do that. And so that's something that's kind of at the root of all of the films that I decide to tell and the stories I want to write. It's about those questions in terms of racism, biases, and like, how are we? Also, I think that's something too, that when I start writing a story is how can we reclaim a trope? I don't have, I know there's plenty of filmmakers who are trying to explore like, racism itself and kind of diving into that, but also kind of feeding into the trauma of that for people of color and the ideas, well, oh, we're, we're pointing out this problem and this issue. So yeah, let's make a short film about police brutality. But like, I have no desire to add to that conversation because I think it's it's something we already know is happening. It's something that people of color experience already. And I don't want to continue to make images like that. I think that's something we were talking a lot about during the Black Lives Matter protests at the height of it last summer was why do we keep having to share these videos out? And how is that triggering to some communities? How? Yes, I guess it's helpful for white people to see, but like it's not helpful for people of color to see again and again. And that's something I think about right now, especially when we're seeing all of these videos being shared of um, Asian hate crimes happening across the country and how they, for me personally, it's just is a very triggering thing to watch. So when I do make films, although they do look at racism, I, I try really to avoid anything that feeds into trauma. I really like to flip the script and kind of take it in a very different direction for the new frontier, which was like that first Western and short film I made. It was all about looking at what I love Westerns, but I also don't like watching them because they're very white, but what are all of these tropes that we see in film? And, you know, it's like the sturdy bandito and like cowboys and Indians. And so how can we flip that script? And so with the film, we kind of came up with a few base rules where we're like, okay, only white people can die in this film. Hmm. No person of color is going to get killed in any way or anything like that. Or if we are going to talk about something, do we have to show the graphic process of that happening? Or can we talk about the healing that happens after that Ooh. and how we can come together in terms of supporting each other in that way? So that's something that I bring into all of my stories, even like the newest the documentary I'm, I'm just about finished on, Any Oregon Sunday, it's about women motorcycle riders. Oh, cool. But me and Tiffany, the producer, when we first talked about it, when we wrote the grant, we had to put women motorcycle riders repeatedly across the application, which felt kind of tokenizing and gross. But at the end of the day, we kind of decided, look, it's okay. This is just for the grant application. Once we finish the film and we start marketing it and we send it out to festivals, we're going to kind of take off that branding of it being like a women's motorcycle documentary. And it's just going to be a motorcycle documentary. And mm. it just so happens to have all women motorcycle riders. And we <laughs> right. have all these women uh, bands that are local playing. And that was something I talked to all of the the writers on when we would interview them, I'm like, okay, so here are the questions. Like, don't feel like you have to answer as a woman. Like the questions here are not like, oh, is it harder to ride being a woman? It's not like that at all. It's just this idea of them ex sharing their experience and just 
being awesome, badass writers who are just doing what they do and why they do it and how much fun it is. Wow. Like there's so much that you just said. I mean, it's like I'm taking <laughs> it all in because, you know, you are so in tune to not only the soul of what's going on collectively in society, but aware of how you want to communicate your truth <laughs> to society yeah. and with others. I mean, that's so amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. And I think the tokenizing aspect, and that's something I deal with a lot because most of the projects I do are funded through grants and grants kind of do require you to tokenize yourself, to tokenize the subjects and the, the things that you want to talk about. Um, and I think it's just, it's this uh, compromise that I have to make internally when I'm working on these projects where I'm like, okay, I'm going to tokenize the hell out of it. So I get this money. But the second they hand me the money, I'm going to make what they, what I said I would make, but I don't actually have to do it in a way that feels that it's tokenizing people. I can just go forward with the art, with the medium, and I can tell people stories in a way that doesn't feel problematic or doesn't feel like it's hanging on to these boxes. Cause I think that's something a lot of filmmakers, especially a lot of friends here who I've talked to, we're just so tired of having to, to put ourselves in these boxes and to right. feel like we have to, you know, fit in that way. Because how do you not let those boxes affect you? I mean, you're very adept at being able to separate the, the, the tokenization from your identity, but does it have an effect over time of having to move back and forth between those worlds? I think it definitely does. I think it sets a tone for a lot of filmmakers here and a lot of filmmakers, period, who who rely on grant money because it totally is the people who are handing out that money, they want to see something very specific. You know, they're like, okay, we want to see X, Y, Z. And so it's just learning to navigate that and finding ways to to get the money that you need, but also not feeling like you're dancing around for for white people. Right. That just has to be unbelievably hard, especially when you want to put out work that is so close to the heart. <laughs> yeah, it can be. It's a bit much, but it's it's a it's what we're working with, and at least uh, people are getting getting funds now. So. That's actually been, it's terrible, but it is like in this moment, at least we can, we're seeing a lot of grants open up and we have the chance to at least get some money to start telling these stories. And there is a hunger for it as a whole. So it's just finding ways to make sure that we really are in charge of telling that story. Yeah. What is fueling the grant money coming up? Is it the social unrest? Is it the, you know, what's going on societally? Is it, you know, Nomadland winning you know, best picture and best director? Is it is it all of those things? I definitely think it's all of those things. But it's also, I was reading this interesting article about the state of Hollywood. And when we look at the Oscars and all the films that got picked this year, and it's really because... The films that got made this the last two years, it was definitely a gamble, but studios felt like they could take that gamble because they already knew they were going to be hurting. So it's kind of this like double-edged sword where it's like, wow, thanks. Like they knew everything was going to be risky. So whatever, they'll try this crazy diversity thing. 
And obviously it paid off, but it, there is that fear, like, how much is this really going to change? Are they going to continue to support these stories? I think they will. I think they have to. I think they are seeing that there is obviously a hunger for it. So fingers crossed. We'll see. I have to admit, as as a white man, when I watch diverse films, when I watch movies that have, you know, people that don't look like me as the main character, I learned so much. And I'm glad those movies exist. And so <laughs> it's just like I'm just so like when I watched Nomadland and learned more about is it Chloe, is it pronounced Zhao? Mm-hmm. When I when I learned more about her and learned about what she brought to the filmmaking and and all that, I just like I don't know. It just frees me to like learn so much more than I would if it was just the same old stories with the same old people, and and I'm just so grateful. And they're just so good. It's yeah, so exciting to not have to see another reboot of something. <laughs> exactly. It's it's great, and it's shocking that it it took a pandemic for bigger <laughs> right. studios to kind of take that chance on these these kind of stories that they were previously like. Oh no, that's that's just an indie sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's, it, I love it when indie film can turn the script around, or like you were saying, flip the script and and allow these stories to bubble up and infiltrate in a way, uh, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Just kind of taking it all in because it's it's just the power of filmmaking is just so when it when it's on it's on you know yeah and it's just such an exciting time I mean the Oscar I don't usually watch things like that but I did I actually enjoyed watching it this year and like just Chloe Zhao she's amazing have you seen any of her earlier films I haven't no oh, they are a must the writer itself is just that's one of my top favorite films so one of the things that i'm completely fascinated with is how you say that you use violence and gore (laughs) (laughs) tell Mm -hmm. me more about that it's so fascinating i am a bad feminist and i will admit (laughs) i absolutely adore quentin tarantino Um, (laughs) people get very upset when i wear like my tarantino shirt around but I think that when it comes to film, to films and enjoying stuff, I think there's just that weird culture of like, oh, we we don't want to see any violence or it's so problematic. And but I just I love violence. I love gore and I love violence. And so I think when I when I get to make films, it's just really exciting to be like, well, I can do whatever I want and I can be smart about this. And yes, there is this larger theme or idea that I want to explore. But I also just want this to be fun for people, specifically BIPOC people. And what better thing than to see white people get violently torn apart? It's just so much fun because we're stuck always having to see, you know, brown bodies like violently. Yeah, it's there's always violence against brown bodies, especially in Westerns. And there, it's just like a numbers game where they're like, oh, we just wiped out all these Indians. And so you know, these are good movies, but they're still frustrating to watch at times. So I think it's just, to me, it's like kind of a little, finding a little bit of a respite to, to just enjoy something and not have to see yourself be the victim. Um, but also, yeah, so that's what I try to bring into my films. And 
it's fun. <laughs> it, it has to be pretty challenging to with potentially smaller budgets to get really good gore too. Yes, I'm not that great at it yet. So <laughs> are you like watching YouTube videos on how to perfect like the blood recipe and all that? Yes. So the <laughs> The new frontier, which no one will see because I do better things now, but it was so much fun <laughs> to make. Like one of them was like, we had this white school teacher and basically it's like a, the Indian boarding schools. And we basically, I got all these res kids to come out and like their parents were awesome. And they basically tore apart a bunch of Bibles, had a bonfire. And then one of the older teens, I got to come out got to bring a hatchet in and stabbed the shit out of this old white lady teacher who was evil. <laughs> and then all the kids just have a lot of fun. They have a little bonfire with all the Bibles. It's it's great. But yeah, that blood, it was okay. I think I could have done better um, in terms <laughs> of the, the consistency of it. What kind of impact did that have on the kids as they're going through that experience, do you think? They just seemed... They were, they had to wear these clothes. They had to wear uniforms basically in the scene and they hated the uniforms and <laughs> the plan had already been for them to like tear off like these colonizer garbs anyways and to tear apart all of this shit. So when they were just like so agitated and like they didn't care what was happening. They were just like, <laughs> I'm bored. We're done. And the second I was like, okay, cool. Um, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to film everything as you tear it apart. They were like, seriously? I'm like, close to. You can just totally rip them off. It's fine. And they just, they were ecstatic. So I don't think they, I think they were very young to kind of understand the larger context of what was happening. The teen who was there at Kodiak, though, he was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, I love this. But he was also so sweet. He had a very hard time even pretending to hit the white school teacher, Dorothy, who and Dorothy was just like, come on, you got to like hit harder, like, <laughs> swing your arm. It's okay. And he's like, he's like, obviously never hit someone before. He's like, Oh, okay. Oh, is this hard? are you okay? And she's like, no harder. So <laughs> it sounds like as a director, you've really become comfortable with the structure necessary for filmmaking, but also flexibility in those moments where <laughs> you can read the, the energy of the kids and be like, okay, we're just going to go for it. Yeah. Well, I like to believe I had that flex. I think <laughs> on the lower budget project, that was the new frontier. I had the flexibility to kind of do that. But it's kind of been different now because I've been getting a bit more money on these grants and these projects and I've been working with more union people. So it's kind of been hard because now I have to kind of reel that attitude back in and safety measures are important now and we're on <laughs> such tighter, tighter restrictions and timelines and rules. It doesn't happen as freely as it as it once did, which is fine because I have a lot nicer products like the No Spectators Allowed short film I'm working on. And so it's okay. It's fine. It's <laughs> I miss it sometimes, but right. also the image looks so much nicer. Yeah. There there is something about when you're starting out and you have and and I'm I'm using you language because mm -hmm. I, I imagine you know, for you, for myself, for a lot of my friends who've been in filmmaking, there's that push to move fast to guerrilla style filmmaking. 
And then once you discover the art of slowing down, like the quality just shoots through the roof. Exactly. I think that's been, especially for my own projects, I think in Seattle, I could move as quickly as I wanted because it was like the people who I had on set were kind of just my friends and it was like not as big of a deal and it had such a tiny budget. But then the projects that I've had the opportunity to do here in Portland, I think just no spectators allowed, which is the latest short that I did. I think that's just the best example of it being absolutely fantastic. Just like the shots look amazing. And Jasmine Carsey, who's a close friend now, uh, was the DP on that. And she brought out just so many of her, her people who are on the shows, the union shows with her. And like, just the quality was so high and so crazy. And just something I couldn't even fathom at the time when we were in pre-production, it was going to look that that good and like we got a techno crane to come out and we had all of these things and it really was still a tiny budget for for what we got it was just people were excited to help out it's on the idea and also to help jasmine and help me and i'm just very thankful for all of that because it was it looks amazing and even my editor dj who i'm gonna help him shoot his bigfoot story in the next week or so he (laughs) just texting me and he's like, I just watched the the screener again, the last rough cut I did. And it looks so good. When are you doing those pickup shots? Like, I'm so excited to like be on this. And, you know, it's just having that excitement from everyone that something can look so good and be such a cool story. Yeah. Oh, you have such an awesome ability to like foster the enthusiasm (laughs) in the people around you. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things you need to be able to do as a director, you know, like especially an indie director. I think if you're rich, then sure, you (laughs) can pay people to be there. I do not have that ability. So I think you have to be, one, you do have to be likable and you have to be supportive. And I think that's the other thing here in Portland, you know, just having that opportunity to to go back and forth to help people on their projects. You know, Mm -hmm. DJ is a fantastic editor and he's done the editing for Don Jones Redstone on her last short see me. Um, he's like worked on, God, do I can't remember. It was like a, a PBS or a Nat Geo short recently or something, some sort of little advertising, but he's a really good editor. And it's just nice because I didn't have almost any money left for post-production. And I was like, can I just pay you this small amount as an honorarium? He's like, totally. And like, you don't even have to, if you, I'm like, no, no, no. I would like to show you some bit of money to thank you for your time. And then I also was like, and remember, like I owe you and I want to support you. So next time you're working on a project, just hit me up, let me know. And he did. I think he's like, okay, I got a grant. I'm working on this Bigfoot film for a jazz festival and like, can you help produce it or be an AD on it? And he's like, I also have an honorarium for you. And I was like, no, 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 keep that money. Give it to everyone else on crew. Uh, You've done me such a solid and I'm so excited to be here for your film now. And he's making me go camping, which I'm not as excited. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. I love him that much that it's totally worth it. And it's just nice to be there and support friends who are also telling awesome stories. And we're going to let the F-15s go by? (laughs) Yeah, you know where we're at. (laughs) Exactly. 
did you have to learn to like collaborate the way that you do? Or did that just come naturally to you? I think it was natural. I think in Seattle, as much as I shit talk it, there were really nice people there who did kind of help me. And like Carolyn Hall is a great example. She was like a a professor at the school I was going to. And she was like an, a writer and an artist. But she just was really sweet. She was a great mentor. And she really took me under her wing. And so did Ron Harris White. And I, what I really liked about them and their personalities was just how outgoing they were and how kind and and thankful they were to people. They weren't like hot shots. They weren't trying to show up anyone. And again, this is a very different sphere that they were working in, but you could just tell that this community minded approach was always central to how they approached people. And I remember Carolyn, we, we went on a walk on one of the first Thursdays up in Seattle, which is like an art walk sort of thing. Like all the galleries are open. And she kind of just introduced me to a bunch of people she knew. She would give me little tips as we were walking around. And she was like, oh, and like, I always like to get little presents for people like after they've worked on these projects. Or I just remember all those little things, those little tips and how kind she was to people. And she still is. She's amazing. She's still around. I need to hang out with her next time I go to Seattle. <laughs> the other one was Ron Harris White, who's who was a big mentor for me too. And I just really appreciated him because he was just so generous with his time and just seeing how willing he was to show up for other people and just taking coffee dates and like little walks and just like checking in on people. And I think that's something. And again, all of these people are not in film. Carolyn is a writer. She's a professor at a university. Ron was a director at a university for like uh, race and equity, diversity, um, but also a professor. But, you know, just the way that they connected with people and were excited to show up, those little lessons I really took to heart and I try to bring into my filmmaking process and at least just learning to collaborate with other people too. And I, I hope I brought that on. I do like to think I'm easy enough to work with. And it's something I do too. I, a lot of people are kind of shocked when I'm so willing to like give people writing writers credit for things. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, they helped. I gave them the script. I showed them what I was working on. They had some ideas they, and then we started hanging out. We started, I, I'm very willing to share credit on things. I think some people get very territorial or possessive, but I just don't really see the point in that. I mean, if someone helped give you a few ideas on a script, to me, it's kind of more exciting to have more people have ownership over that project with you because there are more people who can help build it up and, you know, they're invested too with you once they get to say they helped write it. So I'm very fine with kind of sharing credit on things. I know other people are are kind of pickier on that, but I'm just like, no, why? Like nothing's going to happen if their name was on the script with you. It's great. Like they helped and it's cool. Well, I think too, that's another way that, as you say on your artist statement, that you reclaim and redefine American iconography mm-hmm. because it's like the trope of the lone writer or yeah. the, the the auteur or or all these things. And yet, you know, here you are wanting to share and draw other people out. I mean, that's reclaiming. It is. And it's just, I, the other thing is like, I don't, I think I'm a, a fine director. I'm decent at what I do and I will be better, hopefully all of that kind of stuff. But like, there are so many amazing people around you in your community and 
just taking in their ideas and like just sitting down, shutting up and listening to them talk to, they're bringing so much expertise to your project and just taking a minute to like really listen to their ideas. I think some people come in and they have such a strict idea over what they want and that is very cool and all of that. But I think for me at least, it's a big opportunity that these people are even willing to help me on my project. and the ideas and the expertise they're bringing is far better than what I have already. And this is how we're going to collaborate. This is how we're going to compromise on things. And the project can only get better with that, you know, and I think no spectators is a great example of that with Jasmine Carsey, my DP, like I had some rough ideas and, but we really sat down together for blocking and just the, the shots that she had in mind as a cinematographer were just so spectacular. It was stuff that I had never even thought of. Like my favorite shot in the entire movie for No Spectators Allowed is basically it's about missing indigenous women. And um, we're like going back in time and talking about what happened at a diner one night and this mysterious truck driver, yada, yada, yada. But more likely it was someone at the bar. But basically the head chef kind of leaves out the back door throws the garbage away and he gets in his truck. And I was like, yeah, I just wanted to see the semi truck with him. So he kind of notices it, but doesn't say anything. And then he leaves for the night. And I was like, originally my plan, cause I was like thinking budget wise, I was like, I don't know, one shot will be in the car. We'll watch him throw away the garbage. He'll walk to the car, get in. We'll see past him. We can rack focus to the truck that's in the parking lot. And then he drives off. And I was like, done, easy, one shot. And she's like, okay, okay, cool. Here's my thought. She's <laughs> like, let's get a techno crane somehow. And why don't we do the reflection because it's a night scene and there's some lights on the side of the building. What if we focus instead on the windshield so we can see him get in the car, but we can rack to the reflection mm. of the semi truck from there. And I was like, what? Okay. I mean, it sounds amazing. And, and then we showed up and then she made the shot even better with her team who were like, Oh, why don't we move the techno crane like this? So now the techno crane shot is basically, he walks out, we follow him with the crane. Wow. Um, he gets in the car, we spin overhead and we tilt down to look at the windshield. Um, as he's starting the car and then we see the reflection of the semi truck cut to another shot from the back of the car now over his shoulder the truck back window is open so we can kind of sit on his shoulder almost we see through the windshield again the truck he drives off we stay there and then the camera gets lower and we see these beautiful rain puddles with all the reflection of the scene and the nights and the lights and it's just an amazing two shots that i just never ever would have thought of myself ever that sounds amazing yes wow it's amazing jasmine's the best <laughs> but i mean were you jumping up and down maybe not literally but like inside no, when you're seeing it unfold oh, being like oh my gosh that's always to me that powerful moment when you're making a film and you see the shot and it's it's better than you could possibly imagine and it's just ah that's why you do it right there exactly and you know again the flexibility of way back when, when I had smaller projects, 
yeah, it was fine. I was like, whatever, we'll just make it happen. But then to see it now with these bigger projects with more money and with better crew, more experienced crew, I'm just like, wow, holy shit. These people yeah. are amazing. And I'm lucky that they're here on my set. I'm just so thankful for all of these people because there's so many people here who are bringing just so much talent. And I'm just incredibly lucky. In your artist statement, you say, we have the ability to check one another in our perceptions and ideas. Mm-hmm. When I read that, my my mind kind of skipped a little bit. And, and I loved it so much because it speaks to you as a human being who has allowed yourself to be open that your perceptions, ideas might need to be checked and that (laughs) others might need to be checked. And I found so much freedom in that because then I'm like, maybe my ideas and perceptions (laughs) need to be checked as well. So how did you allow yourself to, to go there? I think it's just, I think it's the entire process and like kind of setting up, setting up a, a production that feels comfortable enough that there can be enough trust between you and your crew that they, they can bring up their ideas or their concerns. Um, I mean, even though spectators, I think that's a great, great example where me and Jasmine had a very long back and forth discussion over one of the big scenes, honestly, the big climactic scene. It's like the emotional climax of the film because we were trying to avoid trauma and all of these. And that's, as you've heard now me talk about, like, I don't want to perpetuate trauma and I don't want to continue to show violence, um, towards women of color and people of color. But honestly, the emotional climax I had was very traumatic and it was a little too much, especially for where we were going with it. And I had described the shot to her and Jasmine, who is white, but also amazing, but she's a woman you know, we just sat there and she's like, I don't really like this shot. She's like, I think it's too much. I think like you said, you didn't want to show violence towards women. And yet this, this is a a POV close shot. And I'm like, yeah, but like the whole idea is to kind of shock the viewer and to put a face on that with the match cut that follows immediately afterwards to kind of make the viewer feel dirty for having imagined that. She's like, well, I get that, but I don't really want to shoot that. And I really appreciate that we have a relationship that she can just be that frank with me and be like, I already got, she told me, she's like, I got in trouble for some other film I was doing and someone didn't want to work on it because they said it was problematic. And she's like, I don't want that to happen again on this. And she was like, I, I think we should show it in this way. And I was like, I'm not as into that. What if we tried it in this, you know, so we went back and forth multiple times and then we kind of found a really nice compromise that I think is way more powerful than my original plan. And I think, again, it just came down to having a really comfortable set and relationship with crew and making sure that, you know, I can be like, yeah, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong on that. Let's discuss it. Let's debate it. I kind of like having debates and I like when people present me their arguments. And I'm like, <laughs> well, okay, but, and I, I do, I enjoy that part of the game. Some people don't like that. And they're like, oh my God, Connie, like stop. And I'm like, no, you, you had an argument. Keep going. I want to yeah. hear it. This isn't a fight. This is a debate. And I like that. So it's been great. And 
I think it's just so important for other filmmakers to be as open in terms of like looking at the story they're trying to tell, especially if they're not directly from that community and being open to the actors who are playing those parts saying like, I I would not ever say that, you know, and kind of just being ready to admit that you're wrong and just understanding there's so much out there and it's just better to have more people give feedback. So I really love that you wanted to bring out their strength as well. When you're saying this is a debate, not an argument, like keep going. Yeah. (laughs) That is so awesome because I think a lot of people are just like, I think especially in all creative worlds, whether it's film or, or design or photography, it's like, shove aside what you really think and just do what you're told. Whereas mm-hmm. you're just like, no, no, follow that. That's There's something there. I don't know what it is, though. Exactly. So where do you go from here? Project-wise, career-wise, do you keep going south, you know, from Seattle <laughs> to Portland to LA, or do you just stay in Portland? The love of my life, Jasmine Carsey, who I've talked about extensively in this podcast now. <laughs> she is going to LA, I think, this next summer, this summer. And I'm very heartbroken over that. I think for right now, I am just really comfortable and happy in Portland. And like, I still see room for growth here for me, especially with a bunch of other projects that I have coming up. I do think about LA occasionally, but I think I would like to wait till I'm invited down mm-hmm. over some opportunity or something in that way. But yeah, I've just got so many projects right now. You know, right now in post-production, I have No Spectators Allowed, which is a short drama, which is about missing indigenous women, kind of calling out true crime culture and how gross it can be. And that one probably won't be released till like the fall and we'll hit the festival circuit in that way. I'm just about done with Any Oregon Sunday, which is the motorcycle documentary. And that one is like literally a week away from being completely done and we'll start sending that out to festivals and hopefully we'll have a few summer screenings here in Portland and some drive-ins with motorcyclists and that'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, like I've got two other projects right now that are kind of in pre-production and I'm always helping on other people's projects. I'm like flying down to Arizona next month to help with my friend Scott Brout's documentary, Dear Doris, which is about a drag queen, Doris Fish, and like her story, Making Vegas in Space. And we've been working on that for the last two years. So that one is still going and it's a lot of work, but Scott is spectacular and amazing. And then I'm just going to do a quick little shoot next month um, called Lihi Moy, which is, I got some Kanakas in there, some Kanaka Maoli. Uh, Alex Ayat and uh, Andre Stone are going to be acting in just this quick little five minute piece about brothers. And then now me and Alex are actually talking a bit more about like a documentary kind of exploring blood quantum and like how that affects Hawaiians specifically and uh, getting in line for the Hawaiians, uh, the Hawaiian land. Oh God, I'm totally blanking on the law, but basically there's a list of there's a way to get land in Hawaii if you're an islander, but you have to be 50% Kanaka Maoli. Um, but that in itself is very problematic. It's kind of like a colonizer tactic to kind of make people feel like they're not enough, that they're not Hawaiian enough. And and how problematic that is, how unlikely it is, as more and more people become 
you know, more spread out, you can't really, yeah. So it's just, that's a big topic that I'm excited to kind of explore in a documentary yeah. too. So. Wow. I mean, what an amazing list. How do you balance the energy of all of these competing projects? I think I'm just very spazzy anyways. I have a lot <laughs> of energy. So That's awesome. sometimes it's a bit too much. And like Travis, my husband is like, you need to stop. You promised mm. that this year you would not do as many projects, but here you are, you're like going on a shoot with DJ next week. And then two weeks later you're with Scott and then you have your project. And I'm like, but I was so bored a few months ago. I said <laughs> yes to all of these projects and they all mean so much to me. So I don't know. I just get a little excited. Sometimes I have little panic attacks because I signed on for too much, but it is all worth it because they're all such cool projects, especially helping out on other people's stuff and just being there for them too. So as people experience your work, as people interact with you, what do you hope for them? Mm, I hope that I hope for white people, they feel awkward and anxious <laughs> when they watch my stuff. And I hope they feel um, like I'm calling them out personally <laughs> when they watch it. But I hope they take a step back from that and kind of become a little more conscientious when they're watching other things that are in that same genre, maybe like a Western or a, a thriller and kind of being like, oh, oh, okay, I guess I, I was doing that. But I hope for BIPOC people and marginalized people, I hope when they watch things that I'm a part of helping create or things that I direct that I just hope it's a lot of fun for them. I hope they feel relaxed and they can laugh or they can just enjoy something without having to think too deeply about how problematic something is because it's about them being violently butchered in some way. They for once get to just be in the relaxing spot of a white person where they don't have to think <laughs> about these things. They can just like enjoy a film and be like, wow, that was great. I saw people who look like me and it wasn't tokenizing and it didn't feel like I had to do X, Y, Z, or it didn't feel like an after school special. So <laughs> amazing. Well, where can people go to learn more about you and to see what you're up to apart from what you've shared today? I have a website. It's not very good. KananiCoster.com, but I think just following me on Instagram and that'll be iKanani and you can just kind of see the projects as they come up and that's where I share most of my work and hopefully you can see them at different festivals that'll be coming up and hopefully we'll have some sort of fun screening this summer mm. uh, with motorcycles. So if <laughs> anyone's down for a motorcycle drive-in, we'll probably yeah. be having that somewhere at some time. Thank you for listening to Beyond Your Imagination with Chris Martin. Head to byi.show to learn more about Kanani and find links to everything she mentioned in this episode. Until next time, may your action always be greater than your inspiration as you build worlds beyond your imagination. <laughs>